Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. I'm Lisa Fisher, a longtime broadcaster and journalist and now a health coach based in Arkansas who's been in front of a microphone or a camera since the 1980s. I think of myself as the queen of Arkansas media. I started this podcast in 2020 to help you live a better life. Today, we're talking weight loss and GLP-1 agonists and the all-important CGM with the book author of The Continuous Glucose Monitor Revolution. He's Dr. Paul Kolodzik. He's at metabolicmds.com and he's an expert in weight loss. You'll get to meet him right after this. You know, I've been talking about Ralston Family Farms now for mm, a long time. Sponsors of the Lisa Fisher Said podcast, and I'd like to thank them for their belief in me and what I do, and that is trying to spread Good news about health and some other things and the frivolous things I like to follow. But you know what? They are a solid family. And I say that because I know them personally. I've gotten to know Robin Ralston and her family well. And I know what they do. It is the very grit of their lives. It is is what they wake up, their feet hit the floor in the morning to make sure that you get the best product. And it's the rice that we've been talking about, the six varieties now with rice grits as well. But it's the fact that they're the ones who answer the phone when you call Ralston Family Farms. And they love answering your questions. They love talking about their rice and their farming practices. They love telling you about regenerative farming and their certification. That's a very unique aspect of this business. And they will tell you they are grateful for their customers, they value their customers, they consider you friends, and they know that if you put your your trust in them, that means so much to them. They are a faith-based family. They give so much back to the community. Y'all, they are one impressive group and one impressive product. Go to their website now, RalstonFamilyFarms.com. I've got a suggestion for a Christmas gift, and that is by going to dogtalktv.com, dogtalktv.com, and buying some of the books there that will benefit the local rescues in Arkansas. And there's some other rescues they help as well because the author of many of the books, Pat Becker-Wallace, lives in Little Rock, but she has Oklahoma ties, and some of these books do benefit the rescues that are there. And when I say that, there's a difference between the dog rescue and the dog shelter, okay? And let's go over the basics. And that is, the shelters often get city and county funds to keep their doors open, right? Keep the lights on. The rescues don't. And the rescues often have a policy, or these do, that they are no-kill shelters. So you are benefiting them. And plus, you'll love the books. My granddaughters love the books. I've given them to um, some of the charities here in Central Arkansas where they're housing families um, for their libraries. Everyone needs these books. And you know you're buying books that benefit a great cause. Go to their website now, buy some of the books, know you did something good for your community and especially here in Central Arkansas for us dogtalktv.com. She won most talkative in high school, and she has been running her mouth ever since. Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast with your host, Lisa Fisher. 
All right. You know, I love it when I have these doctors on that are sensible doctors. Uh, Dr. Paul, I know a little bit about you and uh, I see your sensibility and the way you do some social media and your website. But, but tell me about your path from medicine and where it got you where you are today, because it's not a traditional path, I would think, or not traditional no. where you are right now. No. So I'm actually a career emergency physician, spent 25 years in the emergency department. Um, and what gets the press in the emergency department is the overdoses and the gunshot right. wounds and the traumas. Right. Yeah. But really bread and butter for emergency physicians all day long, every day is vascular disease. Uh-huh. You know, the origin uh, of which yeah. is often yeah. obesity and high blood sugar. Um, so it is the heart attacks and the congestive heart failure and the strokes and the diabetic emergencies. Um, and so after, you know, staring at those issues for 25 years, I decided instead of being reactive to be proactive and try and get out in front of some of that disease. So it's really uh, the functional medicine approach or the root cause approach. And if I think people ask more questions instead of going to the doctor, and I know they only have 10 minutes with a provider, but saying, well, how how did I get here that maybe we could get some more answers? So uh, you're, you're a slim man. Did you ever have a time in your life where, you know, you get the, the belt got a little tight yeah. and you're going, oh, I could be a vascular issue myself. Yeah. You know, you go through that phase where you're raising kids and, you know, your days yeah. are long and you don't have yeah. time to take care of yourself. So I, I was never tremendously overweight, but about 25 pounds more than I am now. So, you know, and, and then I basically found, you know, low carb approach and a functional yeah. medicine approach. And, uh, you know, once you make that lifestyle change, you stick with it. So, you know, something you said, though, that's important. I think our society now looks at if we're not obese, then we need to keep our mouth shut about weight loss. Yeah. And we really need to speak up more for those of us. Mine was about 15 or 17 pounds with intermittent fasting, 25 pounds. That's still what I would love to see your your lab work during the height of that. 25 yeah. pounds. And now, cause let's, let's talk about the lab work that changed during that time for you. The, so the scale wouldn't put you on the biggest loser, right. but your lab work, your, I bet your high sensitivity C-reactive protein has dropped tremendously. Sure. All those parameters changed. And the interesting thing about low carb, and I don't know if you've, if you've talked on your, your show about some of the recent studies, the interesting thing about low carb is, you know, it really doesn't increase cholesterol. Uh, Sometimes it'll increase HDL, good cholesterol. And it almost always, in my patient population, it almost always decreases triglycerides because triglycerides are formed from the conversion of blood glucose to fat in the liver. So the triglycerides almost invariably go down. We say, and I know you've, you've probably said this too, stop blaming fat for what sugar has done. Yeah. I I've heard you, I've heard that on yeah. your show and yeah. it's absolutely and true. I, I think it's profound because, yeah. um, of course, you know, big food has a product or it's products that are filled with, um, seed oils, fake things in it. And that's what's driving, you know, it's that box of rice krispies and granola that you're having 
it's yeah. it wasn't the steak you had for dinner last night. No, no. Actually, one of the one of the nice phrases I like to use with my patients related to fatty liver disease is, "Fat doesn't cause fatty liver disease. Carbs cause fatty liver disease." We need to call it carby liver disease then. <laughs> we do. We do. Instead of FLDS, right? Yeah. No, FLDS. That's the fundamentalist yeah. Latter-day Saints. See, yeah. I'm getting my cults combined now. I'm confusing my cults with my diet <laughs> obsession. But fatty liver disease, FLD, non-alcoholic. Right. That's what they call it, right? Non-alcoholic, non-alcoholic. steatitis hepatitis, yes. NASH. That's right. that's right. Yeah. So that's true. It, it We have to look at it that way. So, you know, I, I have this all the time that I almost have a button on my phone that I just send them the science that I know. But what is it you say to people if you start saying things that sound crazy, like you need to eat more meat and they'll say, but doc, or I tell people to eat, well, Dr. Robert Kilt says bacon, butter, beef, and eggs. Right. Well, eggs have been vilified. Yeah. Butter's been vil. I mean, all those things have been it's vilified, all been vilified. for yeah. 50 years. And they say their next question always is, but Lisa, what about my cholesterol? So yeah. l- let's just break it down. Isn't that the heart health hypothesis? Isn't that what that's called or something like yeah. that? Yeah, a- absolutely. For most of the patients that come in my office, insulin resistance is a much, 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 much bigger issue than cholesterol. That was is. four muches. Like, yeah. much, much, yeah. much. And much, all like, of them were warranted. <laughs> I know. I totally agree. Lots of exclamation points. Yeah. Yeah. So, so people come in and they're, they've been focused on cholesterol so long because the food processing industry and the, yeah. uh, you know, reduced fat, low fat industry. Yeah. Um, and of course, the pharmaceutical industry mm-hmm. has told them that's what they need to worry about. But, but, it, you know, look where that's got us over the course of the last 50 years since the food pyramid came out, you know, and I know a lot of this has been reviewed on your show before. Say um, it again. I, yeah. Say it louder well, well, for those in the back. I don't care. Yeah. So, so, so what happened is, you know, the food pyramid came out in the early 1970s and we were told to reduce our fat and eat low fat. And we almost overnight within a decade went from 50% fat in our diet to 25% fat in our diet and from 25% carbs in our diet to 50% carbs in our, in our diet. And if you look at the curves from that time on, the first curve you see go up is the obesity curve because mm-hmm. we gained weight first. Mm-hmm. And then about 10 years after that, the diabetes curve starts wow. going up in terms of prevalence. Um, and, and that's what you would expect. First, you become a overweight, then yeah. insulin resistant, and then you become diabetic. Yeah, well, Dr. Ben Bickman, you know, the yeah. metabolic Brilliant researcher, guy. Mm, yeah. he is, he says that actually, you know, it, diabetes, we know diabetes and insulin resistance run hand in hand, but he said if someone was checking your fasting insulin 15 years ago, because I, I often, I'm a health coach, I often have people say, yeah. I'm not diabetic, yet they yeah. weigh a hundred pounds more than they want to be sitting in front of me, right? No judgment. Right. I'm just, I'm telling you yeah. the facts of somebody I'm meeting with. And that's when Dr. Bickman says, had someone checked their fasting insulin 15 years ago, they would go, oh, but I'm insulin resistant. And that the next step on the yellow brick road from insulin resistance is the diagnosis of diabetes. Uh, As a physician now, do you, I mean, I'm just a lowly health coach in Arkansas. Do you, do you tell people that fasting insulin is just a must of lab values? So, 
So uh, I do fasting insulin levels on every one of my patients. Um, you, you know, I you know all of them are getting in their doc's offices the cholesterol levels before they come to me. When really a, a more important test, I believe, is the fasting insulin level. And have you talked about uh, HOMA IRs on your program in the past? No, I've read a little bit about that, and I've heard Doctor Bickman talk about it. That's a great time to do a deep dive on that. Explain that to me. Okay, it, it's. It's actually not that complicated to understand. HOMA-IR is an acronym, H-O-M-A-I-R, and it stands for Homeostatic Model of Insulin Resistance. And it's just a formula that's used. But what you do is you, you go ahead and you get a fasting insulin level and you get a simultaneous fasting blood sugar because there's a relationship between okay. those two okay. because if your insulin's up a little bit it should be forcing your blood glucose down because excuse me it should be forcing your yes your blood glucose i almost right, misspoke right. yeah, if your so fasting the insulin insulin's comes up out and it, its yeah. job is to push the insulin the glucose to the cells push the glucose okay. into the cells so if your pancreas is working hard cranking out a lot of insulin trying to push that blood glucose into the cells and the 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 organs, let's say muscles, I always like to use muscles yeah. as an example of that, it's the best one. If they're resisting that insulin, that's where the term insulin resistance comes from. The organs Got are it. resisting that insulin. They aren't listening to that insulin. Um, then uh, what happens is you have a home, a, a higher absolute level of insulin resistance. So it's that relationship of fasting insulin levels, simultaneous fasting blood glucose. If your insulin levels up and your blood glucose is up a little bit, then that means the insulin's not doing the job and you have insulin resistance. You plug those two numbers into a formula and, and you get a number. And, and it's okay. just a number. It doesn't have units associated with it. Um, and basically, if it is uh, over two, uh, normal, no insulin resistance is one, one to two is maybe just a little bit of insulin resistance. Two to three is moderate, and it goes up from there. And I've had patients that have been metabolically healthy and come in, and they've had a HOMA IR at 0.5. And I have had patients come in that have had a HOMA IR at 25. Um, just means wow. bad insulin resistance. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I've been seeing – and I, so as we age – because you know I'm 100 years old, I say. I'm 60. But as I age, I sometimes notice that even though my fasting, and I'm just using me as an example because I'm here yeah. and it's, you know, we're, we're just chatting. My fasting insulin's like 2.2. It did get to 1.1 during a five-day fast. Okay. I, it was the middle of the five-day. It was day four of the five-day fast. Well, it was not fun. My my glucose was 52. It was too low. Like, yeah. it's not... Uh, grins and giggles. Okay. When you're doing a yeah. five day fast, but I did it for the deep autophagy. Right. But yeah. you know, let's say my fasting insulin still low. It's in the twos, sometimes three, but sometimes I notice when I test it, uh, cause I am a thyroid patient. So I do get labs about every three months or so, three to six months. Um, my blood glucose might be one Oh five. Yeah. Does, does that mean it was something, even though my fasting insulin's low, does that mean it was, I just ate something in the last day? Cause I go in fasted obviously. And yeah. I do long, you know, I mean, not long right. fast, 20 hour fast. So they're yeah. long daily fast. Is that one number? That is a number that trips people up sometimes. Do you think it's kind right. of a. Not yeah. So, you know, a lot of things can be going on there. One, and I'm sure you've talked about this on your show, the Dawn effect. Um, yeah, no, that, that's true. Yeah. 
Yeah, you, you get a little that. release of cortisol sometimes, yeah. a little a release of adrenaline in the morning. Mm-hmm. And and so you can get a little dawn effect. And and you know, you know, I like to talk about continuous glucose monitors, and that's They're, one thing I love about yes. continuous glucose monitors. You basically get a fasting blood glucose level every morning when you wake up. Yeah. So I can, would say that technology has a lot that is really kind of the beginning of a biohacking obsession for people. I'm not going to do the aura ring and all that because I don't want to get obsessed then. I don't want to then be fearful at night. Did I get enough REM sleep? You know, I don't need to obsess about anything else. I have children yeah. and grandchildren I still worry about. I mean, that's yeah. my job every day is to worry about yeah, them. I get it. And I can't yeah. worry about my sleep too. But the two different times, the two weeks I've done the CGM, that data is so telling. And I think Dr. Paul, who it's telling for is the person who says, I eat really healthy and yeah. I don't know why I'm 30 pounds overweight. Right. They do two weeks on the CGM. They're like, one girl called me last week. She goes, a margarita sent me to 220. Yeah. She was like, yeah. I go one margarita. She went, yes. Yeah. And we, so let's break down what, what do we want to see? So if, if if people listening right now, first, I know in Arkansas, a provider has to prescribe. It's a prescription right. to get a CGM. I don't know if there's any yeah. other way in other states. No, no, yeah. there aren't. You yeah. have to have a prescription. Can we talk first about what a CGM is and yeah. then yeah, how absolutely. I think it should be used? Yes. Okay. So uh, um, I assume uh, most of your listeners are familiar with this, but a CGM, we use that acronym, is a continuous glucose monitor. And that is those devices that you see on the back of people's arms, mm-hmm. uh, mostly diabetics, because these yeah, devices true. were originally um, utilized to guide insulin uh, use. So basically making sure your you know blood sugar is not getting too high when you should administer your insulin etc um, but I very very strongly believe that the use of those devices should not be restricted to only diabetics right. um, you put one on stays on your arm as you mentioned a couple weeks puts a small sensor under the skin when you put it on doesn't hurt doesn't hurt. It. Yeah, you can't feel it. Yeah, doesn't hurt while you're wearing it. And that sensor uh, equilibrates with the blood glucose level that's in the nearby capillaries, picks that up, and then that is transmitted from the sensor on your arm into your smartphone app in which you can follow your blood sugars. And also, uh, if you choose to, your physician, nutritionist, health coach can also follow your oh. blood sugars as well. So okay. you can we, we follow those numbers remotely. Um, as well. Um, And the way I use these devices is first a diagnostic phase. So patients come in, we use a two, we do a two week diagnostic phase in in which we put a device on their arm. We'll draw the, we'll get their blood drawn so we can check their fasting insulin level simultaneously with that. Um, And I tell them, don't change a thing. Just eat your regular diet for two Mm -hmm. weeks. I I just want to see where you live. Um, And then we monitor that data. They come back after a couple weeks and and we go through all that data. And and the the change that this can have on people is remarkable. Mm -hmm. When they see for the first time what they're eating is doing to their blood sugar level, as several of my patients have put it, I can't unsee that. Um, <laughs> good. Yeah, good. It's a horror movie. Yeah. And, 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 you know, for some of them, even that two-week period, 
can be life-changing because for the first time they understand, for example, that they have insulin resistance or many, you know, I have people come in and they say, yeah, I'm just a little bit overweight. This is the typical patient. Mm -hmm. I I just want to lose 20, 30 pounds. Mm -hmm. That's really the goal. Um, And we do this assessment and they see their spike in blood sugars to, you know, 180, which is pre-diabetic. So they are pre-diabetic at this Mm -hmm. point. Um, And then some of them will be spiking sugars, as you mentioned with your friend, yeah. 220, 230. That's actually a diabetic range. So people come in oh. and realize for the first time that, that um, you know, they have these metabolic health issues. And again, it can be life changing in terms of how they yeah. want to change their habits. Okay. So let's, we have to remind people because I'm very visual. And once I understood that insulin was kind of unlocked the key to get glucose into the cell. So then after we eat, what, what is the normal, normal trajectory of insulin those first two hours? And then after a two hour time, kind of explain that. Okay, so it depends to some degree regarding, of course, what you eat. Sugar gets absorbed and and becomes blood glucose in your system almost immediately. So you're going to get a high spike and then it's going to come down. And and related to that, sometimes what happens is people get the high spike in blood glucose and then they immediately get a spike in insulin because insulin is trying to do its job, forcing that blood glucose into the cells. Mm -hmm. But sometimes that insulin overshoots the mark. And then of course you get the infamous sugar crash where you Mm -hmm. spike and Mm -hmm. then it goes. And that that change, that variation from one level to another uh, can be almost as harmful as having high blood sugars persistently, that variability Mm -hmm. that takes place. And of course that's what gives you the brain fog and you know, the lack of energy and shaky and yeah and then once once we stabilize those curves for people you know they feel that much better whether it's just low carb or keto um but if this is my very simple physiology lesson on on carb metabolism if i may may i kind of so so i i don't try and overcomplicate things you know emergency physicians physicians are just like let's understand things simply let's problem solve and let's move on when you eat a carb unless it's fiber sugar or complex carbs it basically becomes blood sugar in your system immediately so you have probably seen dr unwin's graphs of Mm -hmm. you know this much cheerios equal this many teaspoons Mm. of sugar. So it just becomes blood glucose in your system immediately. When, when that blood glucose up, then the insulin goes up. And so far, so good because we're forcing energy in, into our organs. But when the blood sugar is high persistently because we're eating carbs persistently, then that's when you get that insulin resistance. The organs, the muscles start saying, hey, you know, we aren't going to listen to you anymore, insulin. And then, of course, what happens is that extra blood sugar, which can't be absorbed by the organs, goes to the liver gets converted to fat, and then, of course, gets deposited viscerally around the middle. So in in a nutshell, what I do with my patients is using CGMs, I teach them to lower that carb intake. So then the inverse process occurs. So you have less blood sugar being absorbed. Now the organs are looking around saying, hey, we want more insulin. We want more blood Mm -hmm. glucose. And the blood glucose uh, isn't there. 
So the organs are still saying, but we need energy. We, we, you know, our muscles need to contract. Our brain needs to think we need energy. Where are we going to get that energy? Oh, looks down at the middle. Oh, there's that fat there Mm -hmm. getting broken down into fatty acids. um, And that will be used as energy. And of course, the side effect of fatty acid breakdown is ketones. And that's where the term keto comes from. So is that the magical process of gluconeogenesis then that happens? Right. Because yeah, yeah. Gluconeogenesis basically is the process of glycogen being stored and then broken down. And so you want to go ahead and deplete that glycogen as much as possible so you can start burning fat. In in a very simple visual for this, um, I suggest that my patients consider the bear that's out in the fall fattening up for the winter, you know, uh, voraciously consuming Mm -hmm. uh, roots and berries Mm -hmm. and fattening up. And then they go and sleep for four or five months Mm -hmm. um, and they burn fatty acids during that time. That's what I'm trying to do with my patients. The problem Mm -hmm. is most Americans have food at their fingertips 24 Mm -hmm. seven. So we don't hibernate and not eat. Mm -hmm. So we have to control what Our intake is during, you know, routine days, and the way to do it is with a low-carb approach that will allow you to burn fatty acids. So you you can get slender just like the bear does while it's hibernating. I love to hear Dr. Jason Fung talk about the timeline of obesity. He said in the 50s, um, you may have had a television set, you may not, and you would. He said you ate breakfast maybe at seven in the morning. You, you watched whatever was, you, maybe the news was on at five. You watched TV at dinner. You turned it off because there really yeah. wasn't much at 530. And he said, so you fasted at least 12, 14 hours and no one talked about it. There, yeah. No one had a bowl of ice cream in front of you. You didn't run to get fourth meal at Taco Bell. He said, so that was one part of the trajectory. He goes, was when, um, actually he said in the 60s and 70s, he said, then low fat started interrupting things. So he said, then we started cutting our dietary fat and we started having more accessible food. And you know, we're the fattest we are, but we're the least nourished we've ever been. There are more gyms than we've ever had. There are more diet centers and we're fatter than we've ever had. So, I mean, it just goes back to the basics of, I mean, he's obviously a low carb um, proponent. Um, but that's what, how he introduces fasting. And, you know, if you've ever heard his story about how just as, um, a nephrologist, how he came to the realization that these type two diabetics were handing in their food diaries, they were doing everything right. And he just realized, what is it? He said, we're going to go back to basics. So what's your opinion then on fasting? I I can't imagine you not uh, being pro fasting, but you know, you have your own opinion. Yeah. So, so the components of a program to help people get metabolically healthy and lose weight or low carb, which we just talked about and, you know, whether low carb or keto, depending upon where you want to go with that. Um, and then the, the second leg of the stool is, is intermittent fasting. Yeah. And, you know, I have all my patients do that. You know, some people come in and they haven't, you know, they've never gone longer than eight or nine hours without eating something. Um, And so we start gradually with them and we work with them um, to a 12 hour fast, 14 hour fast. And then I would say most of my patients are on a 16 hour fast 
or uh, a little bit longer where they have a two to four hour eating window in the evening. Um, that approach. Occasionally, some will do longer fasts. I don't mandate that. It has a lot of value, as you just mentioned, related to the autophagy um, and, and really driving your insulin level down low. Um, but So we incorporate fasting, but we tailor it to what the patient's needs and quite honestly, abilities are. Well, it, I guess we are short-sighted in our thinking what our bodies can do because we've been, we were told for so long not to get hungry and that we need to put another log on the fire yeah. that those first people, when we first, in, when I was first introduced to fasting and my son just told me about it, you know, I almost had to take to the bed, said, this cannot be possible. I yeah. cannot go. I'm a thyroid patient. You know, I have hypoglycemia. I can possibly not go more than 19 minutes without, you know, feeding myself. Yeah. Um, and my favorite ones are the people who say after, and that of course, after they fat adapt the, the first few weeks, you, you are glucose dependent because of what you've yeah. trained your body to do. But yeah, let's keto say flu. After, yeah. Yeah. After about four or five weeks, you switch over. Dr. Bert Herring talks about, you know, the fat adaptation. Other doctors have too. Um, and, and you have metabolic flexibility. And all of a sudden, those are the people who come to me, Dr. Paul, and say, I got so busy at work today. I went 22 hours and yeah. you're not writing my obituary. You know, like yeah. I did not yeah. die. Yeah. I go, isn't it amazing? And they'll yeah. say, and I feel so much. I love hearing that. I yeah. feel so much better. And isn't it crazy to think that we really do our best work in the fasted state, including test taking, focusing. Absolutely. On and on and on. I mean, yeah. it, it's just the opposite of what we've been told. So we sound yeah. like outliers, but we're really not now. Do you feel like the medical community is adapting fasting as part of a protocol for uh -huh. healthy living? Very, very slowly. Really? You know, medicine changes very slowly. Oh, I, yeah. I think, you yeah. know, there there's a group of us metabolic health docs out there um, that, that are, of course, embracing this. But, but you know, for most of the primary care docs in the office, it, it's tough. It, so, actually, let me touch base on that. When I got out of my residency, mid-80s, you know, docs were still in kind of their own offices, their own, you know, small group right. practices. Yeah, that's right. You were not owned by conglomerates yet. Right. right? And, yeah. and, and, and basically, you were to some degree a small business person, you know, maybe with a few colleagues. And, you know, you were running your business and your relationship with your patients, I think, you know, indicated that. Um, but what has happened, of course, over the last 25 years is, or, or longer, I should say, um, is there's been the corporatization of medicine. So most stocks... Mm -hmm. Most of them don't like it, but most docs are working for large health systems, you know, or companies that trade on Wall Street. And it's just what you described. It's it's the 20 minutes and they're behind the computer mm -hmm. typing because they got to get so many elements of their history and present illness and review of systems and physical exam. And so they're relegated and they don't like it. You know, I got a lot of friends that are primary care docs. They're, they're relegated to disease management, which is just, which is just, well, you know, we're going to, we're going to 
tweak your diabetes medicine. Oh, we need to bump your cholesterol medicine a little manage. bit. We're going to manage. We're going to manage. They're managing disease, mm-hmm. or they yeah. aren't oh. reversing and preventing disease. Um, and so that that you know, quite honestly, with my background as an emergency physician, I don't have a primary care background, but that provides me an opportunity to provide this service to patients that that they have difficulty getting elsewhere. And I'm not bad mouthing the primary care docs. Oh, you know, they're the not. back. Bone no. of American Absolutely. medicine, but but they are not given the time to do the job that they want to do anymore. I think the hardest thing about navigating over forty is really over thirty-five is the hormone disruptions that happen, and the fact that I felt like no one had any answers. Well, had I known about compounding at Cornerstone.com, it's Cornerstone Pharmacy here in Little Rock on Rodney Parham Road. I would have at least been ahead of the game just a little because Brittany Marsh, though she wasn't even practicing then, she wasn't a pharmacist then. But my point is, had I had an advocate like Brittany and the team there at Cornerstone Pharmacy, I'd have been a whole lot better because what they can do for you at compounding at cornerstone.com and you can go there right now and um, check this out is the hormone testing. Had I known what my hormones were doing and not just listening to my provider going, no, you're fine. You're 40. No, 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 no. I needed a lot more than that. And the Dutch test, the dried urine test for comprehensive hormones, it is, comprehensive is an understatement. I think it was like a 17 or 18 page report that I got. And then the other one that I love, and I did do this about 15 years ago when I first started teetering on the hormones there is um, the saliva test. And I'm telling you about all this because if you go there right now and you use Lisa at checkout, my friends, you save 20% off the testing. And then they can read the results for you. And depending on where you are, you would have a provider in your state, maybe write a prescription. They can tell you what you need. I'm telling you because I'm a customer. Have been a long time. Compounding at cornerstone.com. I'd like to introduce you now to a piece of property outside of downtown Little Rock that is one for the books. Built in 1885, it is Marlsgate. It is a beautiful, sprawling Greek Revival property where you can host your next unique event at this treasure. I can help you with that. I've known the Talbot family, who is just the third owners of Marlsgate. Yeah, go back in time, 1885, the Dorch family, David Gardner then had it, and then Martha Ellen and Bo Talbot bought it in 2017, and they've really restored it to mint condition. It is their home, guys. So when you host an event there, it, we don't call it an event center because it, it's not. It, it It's their home. But they open their home so you can have Christmas teas or I'm hosting a cocktail party there in December or weddings or, oh, they had a fabulous birthday party for a girl who maybe the the host lived in New York and the recipient lived in L.A. It was, you know, both coasts kind of got involved, flew to Arkansas, had an affair to remember. I mean, if we're going to go back and use movie titles, and I can because it's my podcast, but I'm telling you, it is that type of impressive property. Reach out to me. I can show it to you or go to their website, marlskate.com. Well, I think the one benefit of an ER doctor is nothing shocks you. 
I mean, trauma. I mean, you just soon see trauma as much you would see, uh, you know, beautiful field of flowers. I mean, you, you guys are faced by nothing and you're immediate problem solvers. That's right. That's what we do. So yeah. you, knee jerk, you're like, okay, this is the issue. This is what we need to do. So really right. the best person to be in this type of medicine of e- even the functional medicine approach. And I don't know if you call yourself a functional medicine practitioner. I mean, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But yeah, metabolic you, you mind- yeah, sure. Okay. You have the mindset of yeah. well, what, how did you get here? You're at the emergency room. You have a gunshot. Well, what happened? Who? Someone shot me. Where was he? Standing over there. Okay. It, it, it's you want to know the facts so we can get to how this how this we got in this mess we're in. And the solutions are very pragmatic. I, I mean, for knowledgeable people now that understand metabolic health, uh, you know, it, it's low carb, intermittent fasting. Yep. And then the third leg of the stool is strength training. And I oh, assume absolutely. you probably, yeah. Yeah. So, let's talk about that. Cause I, uh, my, okay. I have a new neighbor moving in. I was almost late to this and I talked to him and good. He, we knew each other because um, of jazzercise. He said, do you do jazzercise? And I said, I did. But I said, now I'm lifting weights three times a week instead. I said, more on yeah. that another time. I've got to go do a podcast. So let's talk about how important it is for um, our metabolic health and really, as we age, our health to increase that muscle because of sarcopenia and other things. Absolutely. So so we, we start behind the eight ball as we're getting older because we're losing about 7% of our muscle mass every decade after your wow. early 30s. So so think about that. The numbers really can be, you know, quite staggering. You know, by the time you get older, 35, 40% of your muscle mass. Um, and I see that in the emergency department. You know, I see people that basically fall just because they don't have the leg strength not to fall. Wow. So, um, so it's important for that reason. Um, and, and the reason it's important in my patient population is because if you increase that muscle mass, you're increasing the receptivity of the insulin receptors on your muscles, the sensitivity and the volume of insulin that they can absorb. So they absorb more insulin, which helps lower your blood glucose. So it helps reverse insulin resistance. Um, And so that's a very important component. You know, by increasing muscle mass, I'll just say as an aside, even though I don't think any of us are calories in, calories out people here, you are increasing your basal metabolic rate a little bit, not only when you're working out, but when you're at rest because you have a higher muscle mass. But the main reason to lift weights is uh, is muscle mass preservation and augmentation as you get old and then to decrease your insulin resistance. Well, in conjunction then with our basal metabolic rate going up, then actually our desire for food might increase, which is all normal. Yeah. Like it's yeah. not a bad thing. I think that's what pe- people are so afraid of hunger because we told them for so long to eat every, you know, 19 minutes. I think Ben Azadi says we really do eat 23 times in a day, meaning yeah. the sip of uh, cream and the coffee that's eating. Cause that, that is eating yeah. your body. Right. Yeah. So we're so afraid of hunger that when we do get, I know um, I'm slim. I don't need to lose weight. There are days I'm hungrier than days I'm not. And, and now that I'm thinking about it, it's probably cause I lifted weights the day before or something else. Yeah. Let's address that, that hunger it it's not a bad thing. If you're listening Uh to your body and you're metabolically fit, then hunger is just a sign that the fuel tank is low. 
Right. And if you can train yourself to reach for the protein and the fat, if you need satiation as opposed to the carbs, that will help. Hey, can I bring up one other thing related to muscle mass? And I don't know if you've talked about this on your show, Um, but, you you know, I'm going to go there and you tell me if you want to talk about this or not. But but, you know, these weight loss drugs are all the rage now. That was my next question about the peptides. So go ahead. (laughs) Okay. Well, so I wanted to talk, I mentioned that and then we can go wherever you want with it. But in, in the, uh, context of muscle mass. You know, when you lose weight and especially on these medications, you know, you look at your, your, your midsection getting smaller and you think, oh, that's great. I'm losing fat. But you aren't only losing fat, at least 25% of what you're losing is muscle mass. And one of the big messages I mean, I try to get out there to people that want to be on these medications, and I do think they have their place. We occasionally, we can talk about that once you have your other lifestyle changes in place, um, is uh, you've got to be lifting weights so you don't lose muscle mass while on these medicines. They Anybody really have to do it then. Really. It's okay. really, really important. It's really critical, especially in middle-aged and older women because of the mm-hmm. relationship of muscle mass and osteoporosis. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the inverse relationship, I should say. Increased muscle mass prevents osteoporosis. But anybody that's on the GLP-1s, Wagovi, Ozambic, semaglutide, monjuro needs to be in the, in the weight room. Yeah. I I've seen the statistics of, uh, the, the muscle loss. So then muscle loss is what is you're saying that is such an aging characteristic. So though you might be slim, you might have legs that aren't strong enough to hold you up and then you fall over, you break a hip and it could be downhill from there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to carry this a step further um, in terms of muscle mass, uh, about 55% of your muscle mass is below your waist. And being in the emergency department for 25 years, you know, mobility relates to how much strength you have in the lower part of your body. And so making sure you're integrating lower extremity strength training into this process is absolutely critical just to maintain your mobility long-term. So, you know, the old saying, I'm sure you've heard this, don't skip leg day. That's absolutely true. So, in fact, prefer leg day. Prefer leg day, that's right. If you're going to do anything. Okay, so now I'm kind of thinking about, Dr. Bickman's big thing is, uh, you know, prioritize protein, um, intermittent fasting, and lift heavy things, you know, or, you know, or he says walk 10 minutes after a meal. Yeah. Because try to mitigate the glucose, you know, right to the muscle. So I've always, and I swear Dr. Fung has said this, that they all say they prefer um, lifting in the fasted state. Well, now it makes me wonder, should I, buy, should I be lifting 10 minutes after a meal? Yeah, I don't, you know, there's different philosophies on that. Some people feel when they're at carb cycling that they need a little bit of blood glucose in their system. So they will eat a little bit of carbs before they work out. I personally don't, you know, I I lift in a fasted state, you you know, frequently. I, I think the important thing, though, is that your protein intake is commensurate with the amount of muscle mass that you're, you're attempting to build. So, you, you know, you got to make, I mean, again, I simplify things again, emergency docs are very pragmatic. So let's not oh, yeah. make it too complicated, mm-hmm. you know, get protein first thing in the morning, 
you know, get 30 or 40 grams of protein first thing in the morning. You've heard this and, and then try and get, you know, 30, 40 grams with each meal. And that will do it for most people. Um, even if you're spending a fair amount of time in the weight room. Now, if you're really going at it, you might need to supplement more than that. And I'm an advocate of, you know, protein shakes though, you know, your listeners know you got to be careful because some items that are billed as protein shakes are actually got a lot of carbs and sugars in them. So, and you might even see seed oils or other things that they find it with or wheat or uh, dairy. I mean, it, I, and I know Ben Bickman even said he's, he and his brother might've started a protein shake company because people, we have been greenwashed, lied to, or whatever, you know, they've promised in their product. Um, So I, I haven't found one. Oh, there's, there's one that I've used some, but I, I actually, I like chewing my food. I like chewing and swallowing. Yeah. You know, and I feel like I have more satiety to, um, when I eat real food. So the, the dilemma I think I've run into as an intermittent faster at my age, um, based on the one gram of protein per pound of body weight. So I'm five, eight, I'm about one fifty. Um, I I don't even get, I mean, I don't even get to a hundred grams of protein because, okay, good. My food I eat is so high in satiety because I eat an animal based diet. So that's beef, butter, bacon, and eggs. And that yeah. means you're full easily. Yeah. So you got that satiety going. Yeah. I get to yeah. maybe 75 grams yeah. and I just have to trust. And plus I don't eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, I don't eat till right. usually about one o'clock. And just cause that not, I'm not following a dogma. It's just the way that I live my life. So how can you encourage people? I mean, do we need to do anything to try to get more protein, maybe add a cup so, of yogurt to a meal or something? Yeah, I just think you have to be consciously conscious of it continually. It's interesting. So my patients that come to me haven't been low carb before. You know, we convert them to low carb. A lot of times we'll go, if they don't want to go keto, we'll go in the 35 to 50 grams per day range. Almost all of them do really well with the carb target, but almost all of them struggle (laughs) with the protein target. When we start talking about 100 to 125 or, you know, or more grams a day. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, I don't think there's any magic bullet other than to be cognizant of it. You know, I encourage people to count their macros so they know what they're doing. You you know, sometimes after doing that for a number of months, they'll get familiar with it and they'll have to be less meticulous. Um, But Protein is always a struggle and, and, you know, people need to be just in an ongoing manner conscious of it. Yeah. And you know, what breaks my heart is that uh, mayors, the New York City mayors trying to encourage Meatless Monday in the New York City public schools. That's the last thing a growing child needs is to skip meat that day. I mean, unless they're having beans and rice and having complete protein. I, mean, I don't know. I don't know many third graders that want to eat. Probably unlikely. Rice. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But they do want to eat a hamburger patty or yeah. you know, what pepperoni and cheese, whatever it is. So yeah, yeah. I really hate. Um, oh, that's why I, I politics just ugh, politicians drive me crazy. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, let me go back to, this is a dilemma. A lot of my clients have Lisa, my doctor I ask for fasting insulin and then I look at their lab values after their doctors signed off on it. Cause we just kind of talk about it. Glucose is always on there in A1C. And as we know, the king the, or the smoking gun is fasting insulin, right? right. My doctor said um, he couldn't order it without a CPT code. So I, one of my 
clients had me talk to their provider on the phone and she was Medicaid. So it may have been a little more challenging for her. Right. But I said, I don't know CPT codes. You know, I I can spell really well. I'm a good journalist, but I don't know CPT codes. So what we found out is that insulin resistance does not have a CPT code, but metabolic syndrome does. Right. Do you think that's kind of what they have to do is put I mean, because the the providers on the phone saying, what code do I put on there? Well, because I'm not as insensitive as I seem. I wanted to say, well, she's fat and has high blood pressure, but I couldn't. And I said, what about insulin resistance? Shields is not on there in Shields, but metabolic syndrome is. So is that what you do? That's what we, that's what we use. Metabolic syndrome. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. As, as long as, I mean, because we want people to get reimbursed, obviously, for any right. cost to yeah. find out. Wh- it's just a, it's data. I mean, that's how I feel about the CGM. CGM in my Lord, but it's data for the time that you're using it. Okay. So, right. and that same client was the one, um, she got a CGM that was so, in fact, had to beg the provider for it practically because the provider had to write the prescription. And she said those two weeks taught her more about what foods did to her because she said she used to go to the, in, she said, I used to go to the Mexican restaurant and I ate the cheese dip on the table with the chips because they put it out there. And she was once right. at the CGM, she said, oh, the fajitas will come first next and then yeah. I'll eat. That And I said, well, that's what we call a self-correcting error, you know, that you understood that that meal stacking, what, what do you think about that? The glucose goddess was the first person that kind of introduced us to that concept yeah. about meal stacking. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I, I encourage all my patients to do that. Um, so you know, get your protein and fat first, right? Yeah, protein and fat first and then followed by carbs. Um, I, I don't know if you need to be, you know, a zealot about it. Uh, you know, I, I think if you keep that general pattern in mind, yeah. it's a positive thing. I don't think you got to sit down at every meal and make sure yeah. you're following all those rules. You know, special occasion is special occasion, family event or whatever. But but I think to keep that general rule in mind is a good thing. And, and kind of that, that's kind of how I manage my patients. It's like... Like, let's not overthink this. An example related to the macros would would be, you, you know, I want you to keep your carbs down and your protein up. And I don't really care what you do with your fat. You don't have to count your fat. You know, we do talk about yeah. good fats and bad fats, which you've alluded to already with the seed oil issue. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, two numbers, you know, get, getting less than 35 or 40 grams of carbs in and more than 100 of protein, that's enough to deal with. And then, you know, the other issues here, if you're intermittent fasting and strength training are kind of, you, you know, extra layers on the cake. Oh, on the cake? Did you say cake? No. Um, Yes, I did. (laughs) Yeah. So what I learned with that was when you start eating in a way that your body will love you more, you won't eat the cake first because it makes you feel bad because your glucose will come up and down. And mine wasn't cake recently, but I'd eaten my lunch of my animal-based meal. And then my granddaughter and I went to the mall and she wanted to go get like some kind of drink at, you know, the place, one of the places there in the food mall, in yeah. the food court. And so it was the middle of the day and I'm not a soda drinker. So I thought, you know what, I'll have, they had some kind of lemon berry drink. Well, even though it had been a few hours since I'd eaten, I sipped on it, my blood sugar, cause I'm so now sensitive to this. It must've come up. It came back down. I had a headache within 20 minutes. Yeah. I felt shaky. I felt 
I felt so much worse by doing yeah. that the next time I'll just get water. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I frequently had that when I was eating more carbs and evening eating, you know, the next morning. I mean, I felt a carb hangover oh, was yeah. worse than if you had a couple beers, you know, it, it's, you know, yeah. the, the yeah. amount of carbs, uh, you know, your, your, you know, blood sugar spiking, your insulin spiking, that instability overnight, um, you know, it's not worth it. So I don't eat carbs in the no. evening anymore. Yeah. It's not worth it. Um, then what's... I've heard people say that, what do they say? All food, or no, all carbs turn to sugar. So does that mean if you're eating broccoli and yes. kale and steamed rice, so it all turns to sugar? Yeah, except for the fiber that's in there. You know, fi fiber oh. passes through you. So fi okay. what I tell my patients is fiber is free. Okay. But yeah, complex carbs become blood glucose, you know, a little bit of fructose. Sometimes they get absorbed to fructose into the blood, but complex, the, the complex carb portion becomes blood sugar. Um, and, and so that's, you know, important piece of knowledge for people to understand. And once they understand that, they understand how they can control their blood sugar. So yeah, complex carbs, yeah, you know, again, I simplify things. Limit your carbs to this number. I don't necessarily yeah. going to dictate to you, you know, what your meal plan has to be or whatever. But yeah, the complex carbs almost, you know, instantly in your gut once they're absorbed become blood glucose and fructose. Um, where does alcohol then fit in a daily routine for somebody that's living this life? So to simplify this concept as well, the, the way I ask people to look at alcohol is, okay, so there can be carbs in alcohol, you know, for, yeah. with some distilled spirits, there's no carbs. But what happens is that alcohol is burned directly as energy as well. So basically, when you have that alcohol in your system, you're burning of blood glucose and your burning of fat is taken offline because the alcohol is providing oh. energy at it's, that moment. Okay. It's prioritized, the alcohol. It's prioritized. Exactly. And, and so, and so even though it doesn't necessarily directly raise your blood sugar, it, it's taken blood sugar, which would otherwise be burned and maybe some fat around your middle, which would otherwise, otherwise be burned for energy offline. So, um, so you're burning alcohol at that time. And that's why, it, you know, moderating your alcohol use is an important aspect of this as well. Yeah. And um, also those of us that do bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, it's really not frowned upon, but just there are different pathways, as you know, for estrogen. And it, it has a more, a greater likelihood to go down the estrone pathway for, for those of us taking BHRT. And it's just, it's just discouraged. So and plus, yeah. I've said it a million times, the sleep interruptions aren't worth it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. The quality yeah. of sleep is not worth it. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. Which quality of sleep then reflects your metabolism, your cortisol. Cortisol. Yeah. Yeah. All the things. So um, because I was in the media so long, we often have the same hours as the ER doctors. And what happens <laughs> in that situation is people then feed uh, the media personalities like they do the doctors with a tray of donuts and chips yeah. so that we could get energy to go to the next thing. Right now, don't yeah. we know how that sabotaged 
our health yeah. then and yeah. we really felt yeah. our worst and had no idea. Yeah. You know, healthcare is kind of the worst for years in the emergency department. It's like you, you kind of get your butt kicked all night. You know, you're running around yeah. all night taking care of patients and then you reward yourself by ordering pizza. So, um, you know, people in healthcare sometimes, you know, are the worst in that regard. So. Yeah. It's funny. Once you adopt an intermittent fasting lifestyle and it's your, if you're at something before noon and they have a tray of food, you kind of go, Ooh, gross. <laughs> Like I never yeah. think, well, I'm going to go get a donut. And I don't say that self-righteously. Yeah. I'm just saying it is, it's, it, I, you just have no desire. I'd rather save not the donut, but maybe to eat food and have a bite of chocolate afterwards, you know, but I, I not to yeah. say, because I'd still have some sugar yeah. in my diet. Okay. Well, yeah. let's, we've got to spend some more time on the peptides. So tell me what, there are some providers who say that peptides are good things, but do they, are they including semaglutide and all those or is peptide, what, what is the definition of peptide? I guess I don't know. Yeah. I mean, peptides used in the usual sense uh, is a general term that, that really talks about gastrointestinal hormones to a great degree, you, you know, okay. and how they're processed in the body. And so the GLP-1s, uh, semaglutide, Wagovi, et cetera, you, you know, are mimics of gastrointestinal peptides. Um, and the way they act, their mechanism of action is generally threefold, slows gastric emptying. So your stomach stays fuller for a longer period of time. You you know, you, oh, well, you get the same I thing by it, eating yeah. fat. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Totally. No. Well, now I'm thinking, I just saw the news report about people with newly diagnosed gastroparesis. So it's kind of inducing yeah. motility and gastroparesis. That's not a good thing. Yeah. No, that's not a good thing. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So, uh, so that's the first mechanism of action. The other one we've already talked about lowers blood sugar. Um, okay. So, you, you know, you're going to be burning more fat. And then the third is a direct hypothalamic effect, direct uh, hypothalamic effect on the brain. You know, go ahead. No, I'm thinking. So the hypothalamus is the epicenter of the brain that controls metabolism. So it's communicating yeah. with that. That's where our cholecystine kinin fires and that's a satiety yeah. hormone. So then yeah. does that, that GLP-1 has the late emptying. So it then signals the brain, you don't need any more food. Yeah, I think it's a direct, really brain effect, a psychological effect, okay. um, but that, that really it, it suppresses hunger. Um, so that's, you know, again, simplifying thing. If you think of three effects, lower blood sugar, decreased gastric emptying and a direct effect on the brain, I think that gives you an idea of what GLP ones do. But the truth, Dr. Paul is you're on them for life. Well, right. so, so let's talk about that for a second. So, you, you know, there is a mania out there right now related to these medications. Um, and any physician that starts a patient on them needs to have that conversation with. So, so now they're used so that, it, you know, I mean, get on the internet, you can go anywhere and, you know, have a 15 minute visit with the medical provider and get a GLP one. So, um, what I believe is, is that you have to institute all the lifestyle changes that we've talked about here. You, you have to go to low carb. You need to be doing intermittent fasting. And then you uh, also need to be doing strength training. Um, 
I do think in certain populations, in a limited population, uh, and I have a, a few patients on these medications, once those lifestyle changes are implemented, there, a consideration of those medicines is appropriate. Now, I know it's not a holistic approach. Um, there is some recent data even in the last couple of weeks that indicates that there is going to be a decreased, there, there's a decreased risk of you know, cardiac problems and congestive heart failure long-term well, in patients. Well, wait a minute. When I saw that study, I said, well, yeah. of course, because you've lowered their in- fasting you're insulin lowered, that they you're were talking absolutely. about. A- absolutely. But, but, but the way to use those medicines is in very low, limited doses, titrated up to a low amount, and then titrated back down over a, a determined period of time. Any doc that goes ahead and puts patients on those medicines and doesn't care if they're on it for the rest of their life, I think, is making a huge mistake and doing a disservice to those patients. So, you, you know, the way I, I kind of look at this, Lisa, is the genie is out of the bottle on these medicines. <laughs> yes, yes. You, you know, it is, unfortunately. I, yeah. I personally, just knowing, you know, staying up on the literature, th- this is crazy, but I, I think these medicines will become, uh, for good or bad, pro- mostly for bad, but will become the most prescribed medicines uh, in the history sure. of the world. Oh, you, sure. you know, more, more than statins. Yeah. So I think it's in, incumbent on on a, a few of us um, to to carry the flag of using these medicines prudently. And prudently is only after lifestyle changes, only at very low doses, certainly not getting to maximal doses of, you know, 2.4 milligrams for the semaglutide Wagovio Zambic. And, and with a plan and a predetermined time to titrate it back down. So, um, you, you know, I, I realize that this is not mainstream in the metabolic health community yet. So I'm, I may be speaking out a term a little bit and I don't use them heavily, but, you know, some people are going to get them, you know, whether they come to me or th- right. they do a, 15 minute visit online to somebody that's going to then see them every six months and prescribe them indefinitely. So, uh, one of, you know, I, I believe that if you have a knowledgeable practitioner that's very, very prudently using these medicines in a constrained manner for a selected my, minority of patients, that is reasonable because sometimes they're just going to go somewhere else and they aren't going to be using them prudently at that point. That's right. Okay, what can you do for them at dietdoctor.com if uh, people reach out to you? And we'll have all that information in the show notes. Thank you very much. Um, So the name of my practice is Metabolic MD. So it's metabolicmds.com. We're on the Diet Doctor Provider website. And I'm licensed in Ohio, Indiana, Florida, and Arizona. Um, have offices in Ohio and Indiana, but a lot of our work is telemedicine anymore. Um, and, and basically, um, the focus of my practice is metabolic syndrome patients, um, you, you know, that, that need to make lifestyle changes. Um, and then, of course, I believe in using the continuous glucose monitor so much mm-hmm. that I wrote a book about it. I think I'll let you oh. know that. 
the continuous glucose monitor revolution for non-diabetics because I, again, believe these can be life-changing for a number of people. Diagnostically, to determine where they are with their insulin resistance and their blood sugar patterns, and then therapeutically to help guide diet long-term with either continuous use or sometimes intermittent use long-term. But I think, uh, again, these devices are way underutilized in the non-diabetic problem population. And the use of this device for even a trial period can be eye-opening. And the last chapter in the book is CGMs change lives. Because I've had a number of patients that once they see what that glucose pattern looks like, they can't unsee it. uh, And it does change their lives. Okay, people, go out and buy the book. Those of you in those nice states that he's talking about, you can uh, reach out to him there. And uh, thank you, Dr. Paul, so much for doing this. Great job. Very informative. I love a good ER doctor can dumb it down. And thank you for dumbing it down for me. Great job. No, that's, that, that's the level I operate on normally. So, you know, thank it's you. just a good way to converse with people. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe and download all the episodes and leave a review, won't you? The Lisa Fisher Said Podcast is produced by ClantonCreative.com.